Good morning, Grace, and happy Valentine's Day. I have a confession to make related to Valentine's Day. My kids had candy for breakfast. <laughs> kind of our tradition as a family is we scatter these little candy, you know, the conversation hearts around the place. Now, there was some eggs and toast and cereal involved, but their breakfast this morning mainly consisted of conversation hearts. So we kind of scatter them around the house, and the kids get up and get them, and at some point, I turned around and noticed our youngest daughter, Sapora. She's a year and a half, and she had two fistfuls of these candy hearts, and she looked like a squirrel. Her, her mouth was just packed, and I mean, for her, it's like Jesus had come back. This was heaven on earth. Now, you may be thinking I'm the worst dad in the world, but today my kids think I'm the best dad in the world. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, if you're a Christian, you have the best dad in the world, and he has revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ, in his word. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 2, if you have not, and we will begin. She tried public appearances. She tried being reclusive. She tried leaving the country, and she tried finding a job. But the epic humiliation of 1998, when her affair with Bill Clinton became an all-consuming story, has followed Monica Lewinsky every day. In a Vanity Fair article from a few years ago titled Shame and Survival, Monica recounts her struggle with humiliation and shame over the years. She says this, I know I'm not alone when it comes to public humiliation, No one, it seems, can escape the unforgiving gaze of the internet, where gossip, half-truths, and lies take root and fester. We have created, to borrow a term from historian Nicholas Mills, a culture of humiliation that not only encourages and revels in schadenfreude, but also rewards those who humiliate others, from the ranks of the paparazzi to the gossip bloggers, the late-night comedians, and the web entrepreneurs who profit from clandestine videos. Yes, we're all connected now. We can tweet a revolution in the streets or chronicle achievements large and small, but we're also caught in a feedback loop of defame and shame, one in which we have become both perps and victims. We may not have become a crueler society, although it sure feels as if we have, But the internet has seismically shifted the tone of our interactions. The ease, the speed, and the distance that our electronic devices afford us can also make us colder, more glib, and less concerned about the consequences of our pranks and prejudice. Having lived humiliation in the most intimate possible way, I marvel at how willingly we have all signed on to this new way of being. In my own case... Each easy click of that YouTube link reinforces the archetype, despite my efforts to parry it away. Me, that intern, that vixen, or in the inescapable phrase of our 42nd president, that woman. It may surprise you to learn that I'm actually a person. In my early 20s, I was too young to understand the real-life consequences and too young to see that I would be sacrificed for political expediency. I look back now, shake my head in disbelief, and wonder, what was I? What were we thinking? 
I would give anything to go back and rewind the tape. Well, if you're like me, I'm sure Monica's words resonate with you. I would give anything to go back and rewind the tape. We've all wished at some point in our lives that we could go back and rewind the tape to erase something that we did, to make it go away and to have no memory of it. We've all been there. We have all experienced shame. We have all been beat up by shame. We have all felt that deep sense that we are unacceptable because of something that we have done or something that was done to us. And so we feel disgraced. We feel less than human. That's how shame works. Shame is dehumanizing. Shame does not have any manners. Shame doesn't play by the rules. Shame does not respect personal space. Shame intrudes. It barges into our lives at unexpected moments and makes demands. It's relentless, it's intrusive, and the devil knows this. And the devil even knows that sometimes shame is unmoved by Romans 8.1, which says, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Shame is not easily moved by the words, no condemnation. Shame does not necessarily take off running when it sees Romans 8.1. Shame won't necessarily budge when it hears words like no condemnation or not guilty. Shame hears those words and still makes you feel dirty and ugly. And if you're like me, sometimes the words no condemnation don't bring much comfort Because I'm a person who wants to pay for his sins. As strange as it seems, especially for a pastor, if I hear the words guilty, then I feel like I can do something about it. I can pay for my guilt. I can work for it. I can beat myself up enough and then I can pay for my sins. If I can wallow long enough in despair, then I can pay for my sins. And that's why it's hard for me to receive grace. It's hard for me to receive and to embrace and to believe the words no condemnation. If I hear guilty, then I can do something about it. I can beat myself up. I can feel remorse. I can have a pity party. I can feel bad about myself. I can wallow in my despair. But to hear the words, not guilty, no condemnation, forgiven, it is finished. That's hard to accept. But that's where the freedom is when you learn to believe and accept those words. Learning to let go of my past brings the freedom that I desperately want. Learning that I don't have to go back and rewind the tape because the tape has been destroyed. I'm in union with Jesus Christ now and his past is my past and he's not ashamed of me. See, shame shackles us 
to the past, but the gospel brings the liberation that we all long for. There is no condemnation for the Christian. We're not guilty. We are forgiven. We are blameless in God's eyes. And that sin, that thing that you have done that you are embarrassed about, that if we were to broadcast it over the airwaves or or show it in movie theaters or even put it on the screens right here, that sin that you would just die if people knew, that you would literally die of humiliation, that thing, according to Micah 7.19, has been thrown into the sea of forgetfulness. That sin, that moment, is not you, Christian. It's not your identity. That moment, that action, those words, those thoughts are not you. That sin that you are ashamed of doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to Jesus now. As Sinclair Ferguson said, the determining factor of my existence is no longer my past. It is Christ's past. Your sins, your past does not belong to you anymore, Christian. They belong to Jesus now. His past is now your past. So as you sit there and maybe you're reminded of the shame that you feel because you did that sin, whatever it was, please know this this morning, Jesus is not ashamed of you. That's what makes the gospel good news. And that's what we'll see today in Hebrews. We'll be reminded of this very good news. No matter what you think, say, or do, Jesus will never be ashamed of you. If you're a Christian, you're in Christ, you've turned from your sins, you've turned to Jesus as your only hope, then this is true. That no matter what you think, say, or do, Jesus will never be ashamed of you. Isn't that good news? Because we've all done many, many, many things that we are ashamed of. We've said things that we're ashamed of. We've thought things that we're ashamed of. We've done things that we're ashamed of. And Jesus comes to us knowing all of our junk, knowing all of our dirty secrets, and he's not ashamed to call us brothers. He knows all of our deep, dark secrets, and he stays He doesn't leave when you're exposed. That is amazing. That should make your jaw drop this morning. God's words words to the shame this morning are this. You are accepted. You are forgiven. You are loved. And you will receive glory and honor one day. And it will be public. That's what Jesus says to us today. So look at God's word at Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, and hear the word of the Lord. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. 
So let's unpack what the preacher of Hebrews is saying here. He told us in verse 10 that God is glorified through bringing many sons to glory through the suffering of his son Jesus. And now he tells us that we have one source. The sons of God, the sons and daughters of God who are being brought to glory and Jesus, the eternal son of God, we all have one source, namely God the Father. In other words... He's saying, we have the same father as Jesus. Jesus is our older brother, and God is our father. So you could word verse 11 this way. For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's us, all have one source, that's God the Father. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. We have the same Father as Jesus because we are adopted sons who are being brought to glory. And Jesus is the one who sanctifies us. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that we are sanctified by Jesus? The Greek word here for sanctify has two meanings uh, when it's used in Scripture. Depending on the context, it can mean to set apart, to dedicate, to consecrate, that something belongs to something, or it can be used in a way of purifying from sin. Here in this context, it means that we are set apart by Jesus. We belong to God now. We belong in God's family. God is our Father. We are set apart by God through the sacrifice of Jesus. And then as a consequence of that, not a cause, as a consequence of that, we are slowly transformed into his image. We are sanctified once and for all, meaning we are set apart unto God When we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus, so we belong to him, but we are also being changed slowly, sometimes very, 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 very slowly into the image of Christ. Here's how the Westminster Confession of Faith captures this process of sanctification uh, when it talks about it in the chapter on sanctification. This sanctification is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life, there abiding still some remnants of corruption in every part, whence arises a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So we are at once sanctified, meaning we belong to Jesus, we've been set apart unto him, but we are also in the process of sanctification whereby we are slowly being conformed to the image of Jesus. There still abides some remnants of corruption, and there is still a continual and irreconcilable war. Amen? Understatement of the year right there. There still remains in us some remnants of corruption, even though we belong to Jesus, even though we are now in union with him. And there still is this continual and irreconcilable war between the old Adam and Jesus. And those remnants of corruption can manifest themselves in some very horrible ways. In our speech, in our thoughts, in our actions, and in our motives. And that's why we do so many things that we are ashamed of. Those words that we speak that as soon as they come out of our mouths, we wish we could just grab them and bring back in. Those thoughts we have about others, anger towards them, bitterness, lust, worry. And we even sometimes have these thoughts 
while we are singing to Jesus in church. Have you ever done that? Have you ever just, I mean, you're singing away 10,000 reasons and you just had this awful thought. Can you admit that this morning? That if you admitted it, you would be thoroughly embarrassed and ashamed of that thought that came through your mind? That you would literally die of humiliation if you were exposed this morning? Have you? Have you had those thoughts? Well, of course you have. We all have. Don't lie. We're in church, for crying out loud. And you know what? Even if you just lied about not having bad thoughts in church, that doesn't change your status as a son or daughter of God. Even though there are remnants of corruption that remain in us and manifest themselves in some very shameful actions, this still remains true. No matter what you think, say, or do, Jesus will never be ashamed of you. Even when we get ugly with one another and bicker with our brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus still calls us family. Why? Precisely because we are already sanctified. We already belong to God. We have already been set apart unto God. We belong to him now. We're in his family And the full idea of this sanctification is being set apart unto God and belonging exclusively to him. And the results of that will not be fully developed until later in the book of Hebrews. For instance, in Hebrews chapter 10, the preacher tells us that we are brought into God's presence through the sacrifice of Jesus. Hebrews 10, 10 to 14. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, awaiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And then in chapter 13, we're told that we are sanctified through Jesus' blood. Hebrews 13, 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So through the sacrifice of Jesus, we have been set apart unto God. We are sanctified. We now belong to God exclusively. We belong to his family. Did I just snort? I think I did. Oh, Lord. We belong. Did I? I think I did, didn't I? We belong to his family. And, because, and he's not ashamed of me and my snort when I preach. And because we now belong to God exclusively, and because he is now our father, then Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers, even when we do the most embarrassing things that cause us much shame. Just like that. He's not ashamed. Jesus is not ashamed of us. He calls us his brothers and sisters in spite of the fact that we are all going through a long and sometimes very difficult process of sanctification. In fact, the preacher of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is not embarrassed to be around us in public. Look at verse 12 and 13. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers... In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Here's what's so glorious about Jesus, our older brother. He'll be seen with us in public. He's not like most older brothers. 
You know, sometimes older brothers don't want to be seen with the family. You know, the I'm too cool to be seen with the family, so I'll get out of the car and let them go into the restaurant first, and then I'll mosey in after them. That kind of older brother. Every teenager does that at some point. Jesus is not like that. And we do so many things that should cause him to not want to be seen with us in public. And yet he's not phased by us. Jesus is not embarrassed to be around us in public. The preacher of Hebrews tells us that Jesus will even sit by us at church. Verse 12, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Now, the preacher of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 22 here, and he applies it to Jesus. King David wrote Psalm 22 about a time when he was overwhelmed with suffering and rejection. It's this, Psalm 22 is this heartbreaking psalm about when David felt alone and abandoned by God. So Psalm 22 captures the ache and the pain of what it feels like. When it feels like God is distant, when it seems like God is distant, when it seems like God is off somewhere in the universe and our prayers don't seem to be getting through, and if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes it feels like God is not listening and it feels like he's not receiving our prayers. Now we know that that is not true, but sometimes it feels like God is out there somewhere and our prayers don't seem to be getting through. Well, that's David in Psalm 22. He feels rejected, and he's experiencing terrible suffering. And because the preacher of Hebrews knows his Old Testament, he applies this psalm to Jesus and says that Jesus fulfilled this psalm. Psalm 22, he's telling us, is really about Jesus. And so the preacher of Hebrews tells us in verse 12 that Jesus tells us about God's faithfulness in the midst of the congregation. In other words, Jesus is saying something like this to God the Father in verses 12 and 13 of Hebrews chapter 2. I will testify about your name, Father. Testify about your character to my brothers and sisters. I will tell them how faithful you are in suffering. I will tell them in public how you were so faithful to me in my suffering. I will tell them that you can be trusted. I will sing of your faithfulness in the congregation. So in the midst of the congregation, in the midst of church, Jesus tells us about our father. Our older brother is not ashamed of us. The preacher of Hebrews tells us that Jesus will even sit by us at church. Our older brother is not embarrassed to sit by us in church. Think about this. Spiritually speaking, We're like prostitutes who sneak into church, barely clothed, dressed completely inappropriately, and covered with shame, and Jesus sits by us during worship. We're like the drunkard who staggers into church, our breath reeking of alcohol, and Jesus sits by us during worship. We're the cheater, the liar. The gossip, the goody-two-shoes, the prideful, the Pharisee. And Jesus looks at us and he says, here, sit down. I saved a seat for you. You don't embarrass me. Let me tell you about our father. Let me tell you what dad is like. You can trust him. You can trust his promises even while you suffer. In fact, that's what Jesus says in verse 13. 
And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. The preacher of Hebrews is quoting Isaiah chapter 8 here. In Isaiah's day, Israel was about to be clobbered by Assyria. So God gave Isaiah and gave Israel a sign. And the sign was two baby boys. God promised Isaiah that he would have two boys and there would be signs that Yahweh would be faithful to his promises, faithful to his word. Here's Isaiah 8.18. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. So the preacher of Hebrews takes this passage out of Isaiah and he says it's about Jesus and his family. That's us. It's about Jesus saying that we are God's children and if we are God's children then God is our father and Jesus is our older brother. This is how closely related to Jesus we are. We are in union with him, our older brother. And we are being brought home to glory in spite of all the shameful things that we think, say, and do. We are being brought home to glory. And on that day when we stand before our Heavenly Father, perhaps Jesus will say something like this. Behold, here I am, Father. I and the children, the brothers and sisters that you have given me, I brought them home. Not one of them is missing. Even though they did a million things to get written out of the will, the inheritance is there. I have sanctified them by my blood. Not one of them is missing. And on that day, as it is every day right now, when the devil, the great accuser, points his finger at us and says something like this, Them? They belong to you, Jesus? But they do what I do all the time. Do you know how unfaithful they are, Jesus? Do you know what they think about, what they say, what they do? I can't believe you associate with these people, Jesus. That's what the devil does now. And I assume he may try that trick on the final day too. And what will Jesus say then? In public, in front of all the hosts of heaven, in front of the myriads of angels, Jesus will say, That's my brother that you're pointing to, Satan. That's my sister that you're accusing. They don't embarrass me. I'm not ashamed of them. They're my family. I highly suggest you put that pointy, accusing finger down, devil. And perhaps on that final day, when we stand before God and behold his white-hot holiness and his infinite glory, and we're tempted to hide, perhaps an angel might whisper in our ears, no matter what you think, say, or do, Jesus will never be ashamed of you. Now or on that day. Listen, Grace, we have the greatest big brother in the universe, and we have the greatest father the greatest dad. And that's why the word gospel means good news. That's why the gospel is so glorious. And the devil knows how freeing and liberating the gospel is, which is why he doesn't want pastors preaching it every week. He knows the power of the gospel to liberate and to free sinners from the shackles of their shame and guilt. And that's why he doesn't want pastors preaching it every week. 
That's why he might even bring people into the church and say, quit talking about Jesus all the time. Give me something practical to do. He knows how powerful the gospel is, and the devil knows how powerful shame is. He knows how debilitating shame can be. And that's why he employs shame to say things like this to us. You don't belong. You are worthless. You are nothing. You're a nobody. You're a failure. The devil specializes in schadenfreude, that feeling of enjoyment that comes from seeing or hearing about another person's downfall or their troubles. The devil specializes in that. He enjoys seeing shame work you over. He takes great delight in seeing your troubled soul being paralyzed by guilt and shame. And he knows that shame is powerful. Shame is so very powerful. It's a powerful tool in the hand of the devil. And to illustrate how powerful shame is, a few years ago a man was humiliated and shamed on the internet to the point that he took his own life. Monica Lewinsky talks about how it dug up old feelings that her mother had. Speaking about this young boy taking his life because he was so humiliated and shamed, Monica says this, It was an unbearably tragic event, and while hearing of it brought me to tears too, I couldn't quite grasp why my mom was so distraught. And then it dawned on me. She was reliving 1998 when she wouldn't let me out of her sight. She was replaying those weeks when she stayed by my bed night after night because I too was suicidal. The shame, the scorn, and the fear that had been thrown at her daughter left her afraid that I would take my own life. A fear that I would be literally humiliated to death. That's shame's intent. To literally humiliate you to death. And that's why the devil uses it. And that's why Jesus tells us that he is not ashamed to call us brothers. So how do you know when shame is working in your life? You know that shame is working overtime in your life when you feel like these things are true about you. You feel unclean. That's shame. You feel like something is wrong with you. You feel dirty. That's shame. You feel like you've not measured up. You can't seem to get your act together. That's shame. You feel worthless. You feel embarrassed, rejected, inadequate. Humiliated, filthy, disgusting, repulsive, disgraced, unlovable. All because of the things that you have done or the things that you haven't done or even things that have been done to you. And so what do we do when shame intrudes and interferes in our lives? Here's a sign that shame has intruded your life. You try to hide things. Try to cover up. You feel exposed. You never feel good enough. You feel like you can't be loved even by God. These are all telltale signs of shame. What do you want to hide today? What do you want to cover up? 
that will help you identify where shame has a grip on you. What is it that you wish you could hide? What is it that you wish you could just go back and rewind the tape? That will help you identify where shame has a grip on you. And you know that shame is doing its thing when you feel wrong, but you're not sure why. You know that shame is doing its thing when you always have this nagging feeling of being dirty and filthy. You know that shame is doing its thing when you feel just as horrible about something as the day that it happened. Let me say that again. You know that shame is doing its thing when you feel wrong, but you don't know why. And you know that shame is doing its thing when you always have this nagging feeling of being dirty and filthy. And you know that shame is doing its thing when you feel just as horrible about something as the day that it happened. Christian, it doesn't matter what you've done, what you haven't done, or even what has been done to you. Jesus says to you today, you are accepted. You are forgiven. You are clean. You are washed. You are loved. My past is your past, and your past is mine. Your past doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to me. It's not yours. Let go. I nailed it to the cross. I threw it into the depths of the sea. There is no trace of it anymore. It's gone. You're mine. And I'm taking you to glory, public glory, rest. If Jesus were here today, he'd stand right next to you in front of every person that you have ever known in your life and he would put his arms around you and say, I love you, you belong to me. In public, in front of everyone that you have ever known. Truly, there is no shadow of turning or schadenfreude with Jesus. As we close, I want to read a story about how one woman describes the glory of the gospel, the glory of being welcomed and loved by God as his sons and daughters. She says this, One day when I was very young, I saw my older sister hanging up my father's white business shirts on the clothesline to dry. I was suddenly filled with the urge to hang up one of my daddy's white shirts. He was my daddy too, and I was his daughter, and I loved him in my childlike way and wanted to express it. I couldn't reach the clothesline. It was too high, but I saw a wheelbarrow in the yard, and its handles were just the right height for me. I didn't notice how rusty it was, and I rather joyfully pinned the wet shirt to the handles. When my dad got home and saw the shirt on the wheelbarrow, he became very angry with me and punished me severely for ruining his shirt. I had not realized the impact that that event and others like it had on me. Not believing God concerning his delight in me and in the gracious nature of my relationship with him, this memory returned to me. As I remembered these scenes from the past, I saw that through the years I had not been believing that my father in heaven was any different than my earthly father. I had not been listening when he described himself. In short, I hadn't been believing the gospel, that by faith in Christ and his perfect atoning sacrifice, he now loves me and is forever for me and delighted in me. In Christ, he has made me beautiful and pleasing to him forever. I told our counselor that I thought I was beginning to understand. 
I told him the memory and said that I guess if God the Father saw me standing next to the wheelbarrow with the ruined shirt on it, he, wouldn't, he would forget the shirt and hug me. You still don't understand fully, my counselor said. God would not overlook the shirt, but take it, put it on, and wear it to work. And when someone commented on the rust marks, he would say, let me tell you about my little girl and how much she loves me. I was overwhelmed with that realization. I'm beginning to realize that my Christian life has been a continual effort to earn God's pleasure by getting the shirts hung up right. God would answer if my prayer was right. God would smile upon me if my theology was correct. And since I knew how I had failed day by day in my works, I sort of snuck them up on the line and tried to be away when God got home, so to speak. It is the fact that my father delights even in rusty shirts that moves this most flinty heart of mine to really desire a life disciplined to seek him and find him and by his power at work in me to live a life of faith expressing itself in love. What a joy to know that our needs are a window to God, not an obstacle that makes him disgusted with us. The good news for people shackled in shame is this. No matter what you think, say, or do, Jesus will never be ashamed of you. We're about to stand and sing these words, but let me read them to you now. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. To look on Him and pardon me. Let's pray. Father, I don't know why it's hard to believe the gospel, but it is sometimes to believe that we're truly free, to believe that our past is now Jesus' past, and his is ours. It's such good news. Would you let it just wash over us this morning? Let the good news of the gospel wash over us by the power of the Spirit so that we leave here today saying, what a great Savior. What a great older brother. What a great Father we have. Do that for your glory and for our joy, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.